Well, this morning we come to a new chapter and section in Mark's gospel. Uh, So far we have seen Jesus perform uh, many miracles, and we saw those miracles come to a climax with the resurrection of a little girl, the resurrection of a 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. So that's what uh, we saw last week. That was how chapter 5 ended. And all through these opening five chapters, Jesus has been demonstrating that he has power, power to heal any affliction, power to cast out and conquer demons, Jesus's power to control the weather, the wind and the waves of the sea, and Jesus also has power over death itself. He can raise the dead. The conclusion Jesus wants us to arrive at from observing all of these mighty works is that Jesus is indeed God. Jesus is divine. No one could do all of these things the way that Jesus does unless he is God. And so uh, miracles are given as signs of Jesus' divinity, and yet not all who hear and see these signs come to that conclusion. As Jesus said when he taught in parables, not everyone has ears to hear and eyes to see. We see in our text that this is especially true of Jesus' own family and friends, his acquaintances back in Nazareth. And uh, the question I want to set before us as we kind of ponder this text is, uh, why is it that some people refuse to believe in Jesus? Why do people refuse to believe in Jesus? Uh, We know, of course, the big answer is sin, but what specific sins? What specific obstacles are there for people to believe on the Lord Jesus? Well, our text is going to give us some answers to that question. So, outline of the text, division of the text. Uh, There are two basic sections to this passage. Uh, In verses 1 to 6, Jesus returns to Nazareth and encounters unbelief. And then in verses 7 to 13, Jesus sends out the 12 and tells them the consequences of unbelief. And uh, remember the context here, if you're just uh, reading through this gospel, Jesus has just commended the faith of the woman with the flow of blood. This unclean woman reached out in faith to Jesus and was miraculously healed. Jesus has just performed two astonishing miracles, and now Mark shows us in these two sections the kind of inverse of that faith, the consequences of a lack of faith. Part of the irony here is that those who are most familiar with Jesus are the ones who lack faith. Those who have only heard about him from a distance, like the woman with the flow of blood or the demoniac who just sees him uh, come in the boat, they have this other kind of faith, this great faith. Uh, We uh, we said this is a foreshadowing of the Jews eventually uh, rejecting Christ while the Gentiles will embrace him. So that's an ongoing theme we will continue to see develop through this gospel. So starting in verse 1, let's uh, walk through our text together. It says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. So Jesus is now leaving the Sea of Galilee, the coastal regions, and he's going back to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth would be a kind of suburb of Galilee, and it was about 25 miles uh, just southwest of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and a pretty small town. It probably only had about 500 people living in it, uh, perhaps uh, much fewer than that. 
The city of Nazareth was only about 60 acres in size. And we know from other places in the New Testament that uh, Nazareth was a very little reputation amongst the Jews. Uh, for example, in John 1.46, Nathaniel says to Philip, uh, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Of course, little does he know the only thing that is good comes out of Nazareth. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem of Judah, but he was raised in Nazareth. That's where he grew up. And a Nazareth is what we would call a little podunk town. It is a flyover country, one of those little towns you kind of drive through. Okay, this is cute, but keep on going to the big uh, city. I don't know what the equivalent uh, uh, is over here, you know, Bucota or something like that. Um, I, uh, our family drove through Tenino for the first time yesterday, and I thought, okay, I'm ready to go back to, to Rochester. Um, yes. if, if Tenino is up and coming, they have a long way to come up. Okay. No offense to those who are from Tenino. Uh, so th- this is Nazareth, right? Can anything good come out of Tenino? Can anything good come out of Bucota? Well, we saw back in Mark... Uh, 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 Sorry. Uh, So you can imagine the response of a small town. You know, small towns have a different kind of uh, social uh, aspect to a big city. So a small town, you know, you got your little small town newspaper. You can imagine the response of uh, the people in in Nazareth hearing that this Jesus is performing miracles. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's teaching in other synagogues. And with that comes some natural uh, curiosity but also some natural suspicion. Like, is this really the same Jesus who grew up here? Uh, who does he think he is now? Maybe uh, some of you went to high school with someone who's now you know, famous or a big uh, star or athlete or politician, and you think, you know, I remember them back when they were in high school. You know, they're, they're really no big deal. So there, there is that dynamic with, with small towns, and this is kind of the scene that's happening here in Nazareth. Uh, We saw back in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that his companions, his friends, his family, think that he is beside himself. They think that maybe this guy Jesus, the carpenter, has gone crazy. So there's both a concern, suspicion, curiosity about Jesus as he now returns to his home of Nazareth after some time away. Continuing in verses 2 and 3, it says, And when the Sabbath day was come... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So Jesus returns, and he goes to teach in the synagogue he once grew up in. Um, He kind of goes back to his home church. And when they hear him teach, it says they are astonished. But they are astonished, not at his teaching per se, but because they just don't understand how it is that this carpenter now teaches with greater authority and wisdom than the scribes. They are confused how this same Jesus they all once knew, who had brothers and sisters still living amongst them, could suddenly claim to be the promised messianic king. Uh, In Luke's version of this same scene, they actually try to kill Jesus. Uh, That's not recorded here in Mark's version, but in Luke, they're actually going to try to kill him because of this. 
So uh, this is the welcome home. This is the homecoming Jesus receives from his former neighbors. They are offended at him. In verse 4, we see how Jesus responds. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his, among his own kin, and in his own house. Why is this verse, this statement from Jesus, so proverbial, so true? What is it about human nature that cannot stand to see people elevated above us who were formerly our equals or even our inferiors? Why is it so hard for these fellow residents of Nazareth to rejoice that in one of their own, salvation has entered the world? In English, we have our own versions of this saying, something like uh, familiarity breeds contempt or a bunch of crabs in a bucket mentality. And the sin that is at the root of this rejection of Jesus is envy. Envy. Envy is sorrow at another's good. It is envy that cannot rejoice that Jesus is the Son of God. It is envy that cannot be glad that a blue-collar tradesman can suddenly put all of the PhD-holding rabbis to shame. In verse 3, they ask, Is not this the carpenter? As if being a carpenter somehow disqualified Jesus from also being royalty or teaching them the scriptures. They say, Is not this the son of Mary? which is really an odd way of describing someone. You almost always describe someone by the name of their father. And so this suggests perhaps two things. Uh, Joseph is probably uh, long dead by now. I think that's a legitimate uh, thing to infer here. And perhaps to their mind, Jesus is also an illegitimate son of Mary. So he's the son of that woman. Uh, We see this also in John 8. The Pharisees ask Jesus, where is your father? You're saying you're doing the will of your father. Where is your father? And then they say to him, we were not born of fornication. So there's these kind of subtle implications from the Pharisees that Jesus, you know, where's your daddy? Uh, We were not born of fornication like perhaps you were. And to be honest, it would be pretty hard to believe if you were a Pharisee that uh, the way that Mary had uh, Jesus was, uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit came upon her. There was, there was no intercourse, and, you know, he's born of God. <laughs> right, this, is, this is a strange uh, miracle, and you can imagine it sounding like a tall tale and a strange excuse for what really was Mary and Joseph fornicating or something like that. So this is what the Pharisees are implying, and perhaps the residents of Nazareth are implying. Perhaps this is why they left Bethlehem, to get away from that shameful stigma. Right? You can think all the narratives they might spin in their mind. So uh, the residents of Nazareth are stumbled. And they are stumbled by the fact that Jesus was just like them in many ways, and perhaps beneath them. For 30 years, he had lived a very ordinary life. He worked with his hands. He probably built fences or mended tools or even built houses that some of them lived in. And in their mind, it would be totally incomprehensible that the little boy who they watched play and then grow up into a man, who swung a hammer, who sweated, who ate the same food as them and went to the same church, would turn out to be the creator God in the flesh. When you put it that way, you think, okay, yeah, that's kind of hard to believe. Some find it hard to believe that God could become man. 
And some find it hard to believe that a man could be God. This is a stumbling block for the people of Nazareth. Mary nursed baby Jesus at her breast, and that same human baby was at the same time fully God, the author of life and creator of the cosmos. Some people can just simply not accept that. They do not believe the incarnation is possible, though it is this incomprehensible and glorious mystery. Some people cannot accept this claim from Jesus that he is both fully God and fully man, that there is one God and three persons, and the three persons are the one God. For many, that is just unacceptable, illogical, and unreasonable. So that, that might be one reason why they reject Jesus. We might say for theological or intellectual reasons. But there are also other reasons people reject Jesus, and we might call those personal reasons. Many people reject Jesus. Uh, often people feign intellectual reasons to cover up uh, some personal animosity they have towards God or towards Jesus. And in this case, they reject Jesus out of pure envy. For some people, the obstacle is the pettiness of not wanting anyone to be better than us, of not wanting anyone to tell us what to do, and certainly no carpenter from Nazareth, right? Who does this guy think that he is now? This is what keeps many people from entering the kingdom of heaven. They want to be the ones in charge. They want to dictate the rules. They want to say what God can and cannot do, what God can and cannot be. And if he does not conform to their standards and expectations, then he must not exist or they want nothing to do with him. You meet these people all the time. It was this kind of envy that got Jesus crucified. Even the pagan Pontius Pilate could see that envy was motivating the Jews, Mark 15, 10. We see this earlier in the Bible with the story of the original 12 tribes. This is a family sin that goes back to the original 12. Why was Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers? Well, they envied his coat. They didn't like that father favored him over them. So this, who do you think you are? You think you are better than us. This kind of sentiment blinds people to the truth. Envy is the sin that has our nation by the throat. It is what drives political movements, it is what drives business decisions, and it drives national legislation. Think about why why did the gays want gay marriage? Why did they make the uh, equal sign their bumper sticker and march for so-called marriage equality? Because the very existence of heterosexual marriages made them feel inferior, and they envied that. This was their argument. You heterosexual people have marriage, and that makes us subhuman. This was their argument. Therefore, we want marriage too. Why do so many people want to tax the rich at a higher rate than the poor? Why do people occupy Wall Street and want to abolish the existence of entrepreneur billionaires? Well, they will tell you it's because of corruption and bribery and those kinds of things, which of course are really there. But it's really at the heart of it because they're not getting their cut of the bribe. The have-nots envy the haves, 
And that spirit of envy drives all kinds of class warfare. And you can't really win an election unless you weaponize the envy of whatever constituency you're wanting to vote for you. This is the state of our nation now. James 3.15 says that where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Have you been to Walmart lately? Have you been to Safeway lately? Have you been to anywhere uh, public lately? People are more confused than ever. The gender confusion, the sexual orientation confusion, the what color is my hair supposed to be confusion. Our nation is desperately confused. We are approaching that sad state of Nineveh where God says they do not know their right hand from their left. They do not know a boy from a girl. Nineveh, that Assyrian uh, pagan city, repented. It is yet to be seen whether America will. But if we do, it will need to start where judgment always starts, and that is in the household of God. The church must come to absolutely hate envy in ourselves. And so if you are sad, if you are made sad by someone just like you being elevated above you, of making more money, of being better looking or more intelligent, well, then watch out. There is envy in your heart. And with it will grow strife and confusion and all kinds of evil works. Envy has slain many a Christian households. It has divided brothers. It has divided friends. It has divided churches. It has divided denominations. And it presently divides our country. And you will notice that envy is this curious sin. And that it's especially found amongst groups and individuals who are most similar to one another. Um, I'll give you kind of a silly example of this. Um, you know, I, I like playing basketball. I, I enjoy playing basketball. But I feel, uh, I, I think I can confidently say, I feel zero envy towards LeBron James or Michael Jordan or Steph Curry. I can genuinely enjoy and be happy for them when they win a championship because, frankly, we're not on the same planet when it comes to height or skill or anything like that, right? So I I can genuinely be happy for them uh, for winning. However, um, if I were to play one-on-one against someone who was, you know, my exact height, my exact age, my exact skill set, and they beat me by, let's say, one point, and they got all the glory, all the praise, all the fame of of winning, so everyone thought that person was so much better than me, well, then I would be tempted to envy, right? It's the people who are just right next to you, right? Like you, but just a little bit different that we are tempted to envy. You see this between uh, siblings. You see this uh, between uh, churches who are really similar to one another, denominations who are similar to one another. That is often the place that envy is going to, to be. You can find envy almost everywhere you look. And if we are honest with our own heart, Envy is in far more places than we would like to admit. So be careful. Be careful when you start to make comparisons. Be on guard when you make judgments in your heart about others. Envy is creeping there. This is what kept the people of Nazareth from believing in Jesus. They could not fathom that a man their equal could be God. They could not fathom a man their equal to be God. Continuing in verses 5 and 6, we see the consequences here of unbelief. It says, And he could do there no mighty work, 
save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Think about how this homecoming to Nazareth could have gone. Jesus could have showed up, and because of their great faith and reception and honoring of him, he could have poured out great blessings upon Nazareth. We could be reading a story right now, rather about their accept, accepting of him, their rejoicing in him. They could have uh, you know, been, been singing the praises that they do in Jerusalem. But no, they, they reject them. He came there to bring the kingdom of God, and they don't want it. This is what envy and unbelief does. It says, he could do there no mighty work. This is, of course, not to say that Jesus lacked the power, as if his doing of mighty works was dependent on their faith, but rather that the purpose for doing mighty works was made void by their unbelief. Think about this. If someone is committed to putting the worst spin on everything you say, well, you might as well stop talking. If a group of people like this is committed to interpreting whatever you do, however great, as some evil deed, as something, as they say, even done by the power of the devil, well, then why do it? And in this sense, Jesus is actually being merciful to them by not doing mighty works. Because if he did, it would only heighten their judgment, making them even more without excuse. Envy is such an irrational sin that even if Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, they still would not believe. Because envy locks itself in a room of discontent and unhappiness and then swallows the key. Behold, Jesus stands at the door and knocks, but envy will not let him in. So this is the homecoming Jesus receives in Nazareth. And while he marvels at their unbelief, he continues to minister undeterred. In verse 6b and following, we see that Jesus now multiplies his efforts by giving his power to the twelve. So there's all this power that Jesus has demonstrated, and now he's going to multiply that by giving it to his disciples. Uh, verses 6b to 9, it says, And he went round about the villages teaching, and he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, that's a bag, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. This is the first commission of the 12 apostles. And uh, in a very real sense, this is the beginning of the church's apostolic ministry. Uh, when we confess in the Nicene Creed, as we did, I believe one holy Catholic apostolic church, we are confessing that our faith and our doctrine and preaching is the same faith and doctrine that the apostles preached. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the prophets and apostles are the foundation, and the church is built exclusively on top of them, Ephesians 2.20. It is in this sense that the famous words of St. Cyprian are true. There is no salvation outside of the church. There is no salvation outside of the church. No one can have God for his mother who does not have the church for his mother. The spiritual lineage of Christ's covenant church goes all the way back to Christ and the apostles. And therefore, this is the first missionary trip of the one true church of which we, our church, is a part. So notice first that Jesus calls the twelve to himself. And he gives them his power, 
his own power over unclean spirits. What this teaches us is that Jesus' divine power can be transferred to his chosen representatives. But if you think about it a little longer, who is amongst the twelve? Well, there's a Judas amongst the twelve. And this also teaches us that these chosen representatives can exercise that power while they themselves might not be true believers. This is proved out by the example of Judas, who ministered as an apostle, but later apostatized. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22, Many will say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So it is possible, it is possible, even when Jesus is the one choosing the disciples, it is possible for, for apostles, for evangelists, for ministers in the church to do real, true, and mighty works in the name of Christ, to convert souls, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and yet on judgment day, Christ says to them, I never knew you. This is a very important principle for distinguishing between the objective good work of the Holy Spirit and the crooked instruments he often uses to do those works. Sometimes people have a crisis of faith because the person that led them to the Lord suddenly abandons the faith. Or their pastor, who they trusted and learned from, commits adultery or commits suicide and their faith is shaken. Well, Jesus tells us and scripture warns us that this is going to happen. And yet it should not nullify the actual truth or the actual power that was once manifest in their ministry. It is God's power. Remember the apostle Judas. Remember the apostle Judas. Remember the apostle Peter. He is going to deny Christ three times. All the apostles are going to scatter in shame. And yet that does not make false the true preaching and good works they are doing now. Next, we observe that Jesus sends the apostles out two by two. There are multiple reasons for this, but the primary one here is that according to biblical standards for justice, there must be two or more witnesses for a testimony to be valid in a court of law. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. Jesus reaffirms this principle when it comes to church discipline in Matthew 18, 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. As we will see in the next few verses, this missions trip is going to be a testimony against any town who rejects them. And when they shake the dust off of their feet, they are acting as two witnesses before the Lord that that town should be destroyed. We see also here that Jesus reaffirms the principle that the worker is worthy of his wages, that those who preach should make their living from their preaching. Jesus forbids them from taking with them a bag, bread, money, or even a second coat. The apostles are going to preach and minister, and the hearers are going to supply whatever they need along the way. 
This is a call both for the apostles to truly trust God to provide for their needs, and it is also a call for those who receive their ministry to give honor to whom honor is due. In verse 10, we see another guideline for ministry. It says, And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. When the apostles are shown hospitality and a family invites them to stay the night, they are to remain at that house until they move on to the next town. And the reason for this is so that if someone else, a second family or a third, extends hospitality to them, who might be of, say, a wealthier or of a higher status, it would be bad manners to just take the best offer. It would be disrespectful to that first family who offered you a place to stay to move next door just because you liked their accommodations better. So Jesus says, once you've accepted the offer of hospitality, don't go trying to find a better offer. Be content where you are and then move on to the next town. Finally, in verses 11 to 13, Jesus tells them how to handle the places that don't receive them, the places that reject them. Verses 11 to 13 say, And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many devils, and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. The stakes are high when someone rejects the gospel. They are rejecting their own salvation. They are rejecting the forgiveness of sins. They are rejecting the God who they were created to know. And Jesus says that when you come to a city and no one receives you, no one gives you a place to stay, no one offers hospitality for the night, that the judgment on that place is going to be worse than the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. What was God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it was fire and brimstone. It was turning those cities into a smoking heap. And the reason that Jesus chooses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example is because the mission of the apostles is analogous to what happens in Genesis 19. Right? So Jesus is sending out the apostles two by two to bear witness in these cities. Genesis 19.1 says, There came two angels to Sodom at evening. So God sends two messengers to Sodom. Lot sees the two angels and welcomes them into his home. So Lot extends hospitality. It says, And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night and wash your feet. And ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Genesis 19, 2 and 3. So Lot shows them hospitality. And because of this, he alone and his two daughters with him are spared from God's judgment. The men of Sodom come to Lot's house and want to rape the angels. This is the level of wickedness Sodom has become. And so God burns that city to the ground because of their refusal to repent. When Christian missionaries today are kicked out of the country or when cities and states and nations become hostile to Christianity and openly refuse to repent at our preaching, they are begging heaven to rain fire and brimstone down upon them. 
There are only two things that keep the many wicked places on our planet from being utterly destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. The patience and mercy of God and the presence of Christians among them. Remember when Abraham is parlaying with God. He's saying, okay, if there's 50 righteous there, will you spare it? Is there 40? Is there 30? He's, he's trying to work God down. Will you please spare this place? Because he knows that Lot is there. When God's patience is up, when the righteous leave those places, judgment falls upon those lands. Some of us see what's happening in California and we think, you know, when is the, the big earthquake going to come and just like sink that, that state? Well, it's because there's many Christians still there. But I guarantee you, if all of the Christians left California, it would get worse there. It would get worse. Romans 2, 4-5 says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is exceedingly patient. Remember, uh, he told Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. They still had another 400 years until they were going to fill up their sins. So God has a very uh, a long uh, timeline, but the thing is, you as an individual have no idea where you are in that timeline. You don't know when Judgment Day is going to come for you. For you, Judgment Day might happen on the way home from church. A car crash, a heart attack, a sudden stroke. None of us know when we might be face to face suddenly with the throne of God. And this is why Paul says in, in uh, Hebrews 3.15, Today, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, if you are hearing this message of repentance and forgiveness in Jesus, then cast aside your wicked works, your envy, your jealousy. Turn away from your sins. Prepare for judgment day because you don't know when you might die. This is a perennially true message. The same message that the apostles preached is the same message you hear every week. The kingdom of God is here. It is within you. It is amongst you. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. If you reject that message, if our nation rejects that message, it will be far worse for us on Judgment Day than Sodom and Gomorrah. And what could be worse? What could be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? Close with this. What obstacles, what obstacles are there to your belief? What sins, what envy is keeping you from receiving healing at the hands of Christ? Jesus has sent forth apostles. He has sent forth preachers to the ends of the earth to proclaim forgiveness in his name. And if you will, cast aside your pride. If you will look to him for salvation, he has given the church authority and power to declare that your sins are forgiven through Christ. He has given the church authority to bind and to loose, to baptize and excommunicate, to preach this gospel to all who will hear. And so receive that message. Welcome Christ into the home of your heart. Let him take up residence there, and he will make you clean. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.
Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask on behalf of our state, on our city, on our nation, with the capital just 20 minutes north of us, uh, we ask that you would be merciful. We ask that you would uh, raise up more faithful churches, that you would cause your word to penetrate the darkness, that you would cause the residents of our region to get on their knees, to repent in sackcloth and ashes like the Ninevites did. God, sober us. Sober us that we might come to truly know you and know ourselves as you want us to know ourselves. God, bring salvation. We ask this on behalf of our country, on our state. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen.